You are now listening to episode 81 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis. This is my show with the funny title. And today I am talking with Rayford Davis. No relation. Rayford is a former cop turned freedom advocate. And over the course of the next hour and change, he'll explain how this all came to be and what it means. And uh, it's a difficult subject, um, one that uh, concerns me greatly, and also a subject for which I feel I have uh, no control or input or um, much of anything I can do. Uh, regardless of my level of concern. So for my own sanity, I try to ignore this subject as much as possible. The overall theme here is the drug war, all right? And um, let's let Rayford uh, step us through this. Please check out the show notes uh, for the links for Rayford's work. That's it for this intro. As always, I thank you for listening. Yeah, so uh, what would you like to talk about this evening? I think the idea is I want to unpack this, um, the war on drugs. Um, so we have a national, I would just say it's a national issue. And... I let me let's just let me say a few things. I follow you on Twitter or I followed you, but I had to unfollow you because the things you tweet about strike me to my core and I get very upset. <laughs> and, and these things are usually abuses of authority. Um, improper force being used against people, individuals, and it's usually stemming from the war on drugs. There is a war in the United States, unless in in case anybody doesn't know it, we are at war with drugs. And that has turned into a war against our citizens. And it, I mean, I really have to... uh, push it away from myself. I get too wrapped up and too crazy about this issue, even though it has nothing to do with my life. You know, I'm not a libertarian podcaster and <laughs> I don't hate the police. And yet I, I think I need to talk about this. And I think you're the right guy. Okay. Well, you know, I, l- let me talk just a little about it, uh, kind of where I came from and, you know, how, how I became a, a police officer and, and then why, you know, I, yeah, why am I on Twitter now? Uh, just, just railing at total opposite of what I enforced, uh, you know, as a police officer just mm. you know, a few years ago. And how, mm-hmm. how did that come about? Exactly. And, yes. And, and so how, and, and when I say it's, you know, how did this former, you know, zealous drug warrior uh, become a zealous legalization advocate? And, you know, yeah, so I grew up in South Carolina, a good 
Christian, conservative, compassionate conservative person. Uh, I thought I had good judgment. Uh, You know, I was married. I was, you know, 29 years old, a little bit older than most cops, you know, starting out. Um, I wanted to do the right thing and help my community. And, and that's the that's the reason that, that most people get into law enforcement. They aren't. These, I, I should hope so. Those are the police I would want. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. They, they you know, they aren't, you know, uh, these whole vicious, malevolent guys that just, you know, want to go out and just, uh, cause hate and discontent it's you know it's it's not like that you have some of that but that's vast majority are are well intentioned just just like i was uh i have a i have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice uh spent time uh in the coast guard um and you know have have lived in diverse areas communities uh you know lived in the, the caribbean and the cayman islands uh, had good exposure to, you know, to other cultures and people. And uh, so I joined, uh, started off with the city of North Charleston, uh, which is kind of like the, you know, the kind of the gritty uh, working class part uh, as opposed to the genteel, uh, you know, sweet tea and, and uh, <laughs> you know, azaleas <laughs> that people think about when they think of Charleston. So it's a population of about 80,000 people. Uh, yeah, probably about you know uh, half and half uh, black, white, and and uh, you know a rising hi- Hispanic population, and um, you know and why did I choose them? Because they needed help, and they needed people like me with good integrity. And I I was gonna I didn't want I wasn't just getting a badge, you know, it was just some kind of trinket for myself. I wanted to bring honor and integrity, uh, and and to to law enforcement and and so you know went went through the training at the academy um and got out on the streets and there's hey there's real crime out there (laughs) yeah for sure right (laughs) right so there there is real crime and there's people begging you in the community please help us you know uh you know we're poor we're desperate uh we've been suffering for years you've got to do something and you know you get out there and so you you're motivated let's get tough man and and quickly you see that what you're doing is not working uh you know i really there's one story when i very new uh in law enforcement and we're working this one high crime area it's called four way it's just a you know, four-way stop in a, in a struggling neighborhood. Uh, lots of, you know, kind of street-level drug activity and stuff. And so we're being aggressive. And, and by doing that, you know, you you pull over people for not using their turn signal long enough or failure to come to a complete stop. And then you try to build that into a drug search, you know. And we're stopping people for no bell on their bicycle or no light on their bicycle or, j- you know, crossing the street the wrong way. And you try uh-huh. to build that into, into a pat-down because we're looking for guns and dope you know we're looking for the bad guys and uh, so we pulled over this one kid he was on like this little crappy little moped and of course it's you know it's a black kid uh scrawny scrawny little fella and we pull him over for not using his turn signal long enough or something and and he, you know we all kind of swarm around and there's about five of us cops you know big guys uniforms you know biceps sticking out of our tight shirts and guns you know, mind if we search your vehicle you know <laughs> and this kid's looking at us like 
do I have a choice? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so of course he gives us consent. You know, and we strip this this busty, uh, busted up moped. You know, pulling the covers off the handlebars, looking to see if he's got dope in it or something. And of course, we didn't find anything. And uh, you know, send the kid on his way. And 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 I was I was like, wow, we look like the you know the vicious thugs here. Uh, and, and we we sure. There's no doubt we earned that kid's enmity you know, for the rest of his life. And I was thinking, man, he's going to pass that hate down to his the kids. Stories, the stories he will tell forever. Yeah, and I'm looking yeah. down this street. I mean, we had a we had a, uh, a a police substation right there on the on the in the community center, and cops better than me had been working that working that neighborhood for 20 years, and nothing had changed, and. And I was like, wow, this is, I learned right there what we are doing is not working. Uh, And that's what all cops would say, what we're doing is not working. Um, But I kept at it. What did I know? You know, I'm just some rookie, uh, a sergeant, a chief, and there's, you know, even pastors and politicians and everybody that I respect uh, uh, telling me this is what we've got to do, you know, to stop this crazy, you know, this crazy zombie horde of, you know, drug dealers and everything. Uh, but I saw that we actually created, a, you know, a lot. The drug enforcement actually created a lot of the violence. And I knew this from my history books, and we all do from alcohol prohibition. It's the same thing. It was the prohibition that created so much of the violence. It wasn't really the substance itself, but uh, when when you prohibit it, uh, you're going to have people, uh, they're, they're still going to sell it, and actually more are because you're going to, you have that increased profit motive. And the moment there's a dispute, uh, if you're if you're in the drug business, you have to use violence. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to stay in it very long. If somebody doesn't pay you and you just you know shrug it off, well you're you know you're out of business quickly. It's actually the guys that are more willing to use violence, uh, just like Al Capone. That's how he climbed to the top. He was the most vicious. And so we, that's what we saw on a small level. We had the most vicious guys that would, would click quickly, uh, I guess what you would call climb to the top of, of sure. a very, very small drug dealing dung heap, uh, you know, in our communities. But that was, that was all of the disputes was, was because you could not resolve them peacefully. I, I never responded to a, shooting from you know a pharmacist that did a drive-by on somebody's house that didn't pay i never responded to a shooting between two liquor distributors you know here are these guys these guys driving the liquor trucks to the same store stocking the same shelves they're fierce competitors hey they never try to kill each other imagine that same you know substance is mm-hmm. just as dangerous yet didn't have the violence and then i then i saw what what damage we did when we actually when I arrested somebody and and how did that help them so I would arrest them uh you know and they'd say man that ain't right you know and and I felt kind of you know kind of bothered my conscience in a way I guess I kind of always had kind of a, a libertarian streak or something in me and you know and they're saying you know I'm, I'm you know they would say you know I, I have the right to do this this is my body my choice uh you know, 
you, you have no right to arrest me for this. And, and I kind of knew they were right. Uh, and, uh, but I saw how devastating it was. I mean, you, you arrest somebody, even just a, just a misdemeanor charge. You know, you arrest them, you got a $500 fine, you put them in jail. Oh, and you tow their car. Oh, that's the worst, man. I mean, you mm-hmm. really screw somebody over when you tow their car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, even for a marijuana arrest, you would lose your license automatically for six months in South Carolina. So You're Perpetuating. Yeah, so we had all the... And, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, so this guy, you know, even... It, so he's... You know, he has a job or something. Well, he just lost it because now he's in jail for, you know, uh, even just a couple of days. Well, they're probably going to fire him and he doesn't have a car now. Uh, he's going to have all these impound fees and everything to pay just to get it out. He probably can't do it. Uh, and so that car is going to sit there. And and then when he gets out of jail after paying all those fines and fees, uh, get in maybe getting his car back out. Well, his license is suspended, so he can't drive. Or if he dares to drive to work or something, uh, then he's got to worry about the cops pulling him over. Yeah, the impound fees alone <clears throat> are usually more than the value of the vehicle. I've right. been in that. Yeah, I've I've been through that before. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's just a, you know an absolute absolute nightmare. And you see, so what what had we done? Uh, you know, actually. I saw that that by locking them up, we, we I locked them in to more drug use. Uh, and if if they were if they had an addiction problem or something, oh, I just made it a thousand times worse for them. Uh, you know, I totally screwed them over. If there was any type of stability or anything in their life, I just I just you know kicked it in the garbage for them. Uh, I would always, you know, try to give them, uh, you know, some kind of like uh, dog the bounty hunter kind of speech. You know, I was the nice cop uh, when I was taking them to jail. Yeah, you know, here's your opportunity to get yourself straight and get your life back on track and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As I'm, you know, just totally kicking them. Uh, <clears throat> and and it just, this is not working. I'm just not comfortable with it. I, watched, <clears throat> I was not on a SWAT team, but, you know... Per, uh, watched him do a couple SWAT raids, and and so our SWAT team would go into this the most dilapidated house in these neighborhoods, you know, breaching around on the door, uh, black going in there, you know, with uh, you know all suited up and guns, storming storming in there, yelling and screaming, throwing flashbangs, gra- grabbing people out, and they'd come out, you know, arresting six seven people. They come up with like. Two hundred, seven hundred dollars, couple grams of cocaine or crack or something like that, and I mean, this you're looking at this. It's crazy. Just the just the money on the salaries for the you know the police officer just for those few hours, <laughs> for this for this house, you know. Yep. yep. It's just just the bottom of 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 society in the community, and you're just smashing them even more. And, and so, you know, I got out, I said, and just what a lot of officers do is they become uncomfortable with, with it. And I, I, be, I became uncomfortable with, you know, that aggressive policing and, and just, you know, you, you pull over people, uh, you know, that live in that neighborhood and they, you know, they just get pulled over constantly and constantly and harassing them. And you're trying to, you know, manipulate them, uh, into, uh, you know, a consent to search or using some type of, you know, excuse, affirmative movements or something like that, uh, to, to, 
do a search or a pat down search ostensibly for weapons and for your own safety but yeah yeah you're looking for dope and everything mm-hmm. um and and and, when, and i had a, i said man i can't do this anymore so i i had an opportunity to go to detective division and i went into the juvenile investigations and i said man i want to go where there's real crime and so um where there's real victims and on my way to Detective Vision, from the last days I was working in, in, in patrol, I was directing traffic at a car accident, got hit by a truck, and uh, broke my leg. Uh, yeah. So, um, so went through that, you know, that was a pretty serious, uh, you know, f- uh, physical uh, injury and, uh, you know, traumatic. Um, went to Detective Division, got up there, and... I saw how we dealt with real crime and law enforcement couldn't even do that properly. Number one, we were totally understaffed. And so we just had all these cases just, just kind of coming over the transom. Uh, Yet we had lots of cops running dope, but here's, you know, we had real victims and we're trying to investigate this stuff. And, and these cases did not get the investigation that they deserved because manpower was directed towards guns and dope. Mm-hmm. And, and not only did I see, you know, victims uh, that weren't, that weren't taken care of properly, but what I saw was people that were very likely not guilty of abusing children of actually being pro- prosecuted uh, and that that was kind of the final straw uh, to my conscience, and and I and was, you know it was really kind of one last case. Uh, investigated a, a case uh, where a young girl, teenager, um, it's just a really just just very vague type accusations that her. Uh, mother's boyfriend years ago had uh, had sexually assaulted her and there's really just nothing to go on and and her kind of disclosure was uh, I don't want to say coerced or anything but it was it was it felt to me like it was it was led by uh, kind of like the victims advocates type organizations and and I wasn't comfortable with charging this guy, and and so we're ta- we're discussing it with my uh, with my sergeant. I'm like, look, if I was on the jury, I wouldn't convict this guy on what what we have. Uh, I'm not saying he didn't do it, but I wouldn't convict them. And you know that that was like a record scratching. Oh no, you can't make that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know you you've got this you've got to charge him and and you know send that to the prosecutor and let them, you know and let them make that for decision. them to decide. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and so I charged him and that, that, and that, and that was, that was kind of the end for me. Uh, I, in a way I was lucky that my leg did not heal back properly and I was not able to, to really walk or run very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I got out, uh, you know, on a disability, uh, at, at pretty much the same time, uh, and and I, and I really had physically, I had no choice but to get out. I see. Uh, and 
so uh, yeah, I saw that even you know real crimes they didn't investigate it properly, and then we had yeah, then they have this drug war. These are victimless crimes. Uh, they're just created crimes uh, from from the government. They just make it. They just make it mm-hmm. up. Is and, it, and, it is the pursuit or the enforcement of drug laws uh, an income revenue source for um, police? Now, our narcotics teams, they, it it does get involved because, you know, when they would plan their raids, they would look at things like, uh, you know, does this person own their own car? Uh, exactly how, you know, we would like to we would like to hit them when they have a little bit of dope and a lot of cash. Uh, do they own their home? Uh, those type of things. So they could go for, you know, civil asset forfeiture uh, type yeah, this is uh, a huge deal. They actually so, seize so people's property, um, even if they, they, it wasn't the homeowner who was the person charged, but someone in their home, and they could mm-hmm. still seize the home. Right, that's right. So they would do things like that, and and it really wasn't until I got out of policing, and and was just kind of able to you know, to reflect. And what always kind of rolled through my head is when is it okay to use force against another person? What is the kind of the fundamental guidelines that, that you can use? Uh, and, and I could roll, kind of rolled that head over through my mind and, you know, you know, everything, everything I did, at, you know, as a police officer was legally justifiable. You know, I, be, I began, uh, to look back and question the moral justification of enforcing drug laws. And and me as a as a citizen, I do not have the moral authority to use violence and and kick in the door of a stranger's home, put a gun to their face and drag them out, take their their possessions uh even if they are, you know, unlawful mood altering substances. And so if I don't have that right as a citizen, how do I have that right as a police officer? And you say, well, the, it's the law. Okay, well, where's the law come from? Well, it's, it's, it comes from the citizens. But then the citizens don't have that right in the first place. So how are they able to delegate it to law enforcement? Hmm. And, and you pull on that thread. Mm-hmm. And you start to see that pretty much a great deal of what law enforcement does is actually morally unjustifiable. While it may be legal, uh, it is not okay. It is not okay to initiate violence against another person. Now you can defend yourself. Sure, a, a cop is morally justified in arresting a thief or somebody that uh, that assaults a person or a rapist. Of course they are, or a murderer. Uh, but someone that, drug activity is just consensual adult activity. Their use, the trade of it, that's all consensual. So it's not okay to use violence to stop another person and to interfere. And so it's you as the police officer, when you go out there, even if you're all nice and just kind of clicking handcuffs on somebody all, all nice, like, I'm sorry, but you, you know, you got that weed there and it's illegal. So I'm going to have to put you under arrest. That is violence. You're, 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 you're kidnapping the person. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And, 
and and that is morally wrong. Your badge does not shield you from that morality. Slavery was immoral when it was legal. Uh, Japanese internment, immoral. Well, yeah, it was legal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they what we did. Oh, you know, you look at the, the the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court cannot alter the laws of morality, and. It's laws, a law. Now, while a law may be immoral, it's that individual officer. Laws are just ink and paper. So it's that individual police officer, that that guy like me, Rayford Davis, that by putting those handcuffs on and using that law as a justification, I am the one that brings that harm of an unjust law into physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, that affected my, my conscience. And, you know, you've, would you moral fiber, spirituality? Uh, you know, I felt that. And I think that's, you know, that's what your conscience is, is, is an awareness of the fundamental, uh, laws of, of, uh, interaction between human beings there are there are basic rights and wrongs you can call it god's will or a cosmic karma common law whatever you choose to call it but when any any, whenever you enforce any of man's laws that are inconsistent with natural law you are action acting in an unjust manner and you are wrong and you suffer consequences to your own morality and spiritual fiber for that your badge will not shield you from that hmm. so you we've really developed uh, a system where police officers with any moral conscience whatsoever will are probably suffering inside i think i think a great deal of what we see as ptsd in soldiers and cops is actually moral injury um that it's not you sure you see traumatic things uh, you, you know i was hit by a truck i had people try to kill me uh which was definitely you know just traumatic and has its own stress but really what got me was the harm that i caused to others i never put anyone in the hospital i never shot anyone uh but i i harmed them unjustly and just doing my job or it was the law uh does not make it okay mm-hmm. and and so and we this so you can't address this though in police officers and soldiers you cannot address that because that would require admitting much of what these soldiers and cops do and are asked to do is morally unjustified and that admission would delegitimize much of our government mm. Mm-hmm. And and that's that. Like I said, you pull on that thread, and it really the you know the whole thing starts to unravel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's hard. You have to, you know, it took me about two years of of, of kind of thinking about this, and you know, and reading. Yeah, I'll, yeah, a lot of libertarian, uh, you know, type work uh, to to get to this point. And it, I did not want to. 
you know, because I had to, I had to admit that yeah, what I a lot of what I did are wrong. A lot of what I believed in and that was right that I was convinced was right. I was actually horribly wrong. Uh, that's tough on your ego, and you know you have this whole cognitive dissonance that fights you every bit of the way. And I went through, you know, a really transformative uh, process, if you want to call it a, you know, a death and rebirth or something. Uh, yeah, something, yeah, along those lines. Hmm. Something interesting I'm thinking about here is, um, say, like the proper role of government, one of its key functions is to honor contracts, to be an arbiter um, in contract disputes. But that would require the contract to be about something that's legal. If the contract was about something illegal, it, the, the two parties can't bring it to court. They have nowhere to go, no higher authority. This is what leads to the street violence. The man who got ripped off is just going to go shoot someone. There's no, there's nowhere to go with the case, you know. Yeah, that's that's all that's all he's got, and and then you don't have, uh, you you don't have, uh, you know, businesses have reputations and credibility, uh, so you know they want to treat customers right. You know, if you rip off customers, you're not going to stay in business very long, uh, but you know if you're hidden uh, behind a you know a veil of of the black market. Then you then you can exist uh, like that, and it and it perpetuates, and then and it uh, and so cops are just chasing their tails by going out there and getting tough. You you criminalize a lot of people that are just so much of the of the drug trade is nonviolent and and just normal people. Uh, so much of it is. Uh, but you you unnecessarily criminalize them, and by getting tougher, uh, you you just make people you drive up the cost for them to do more risk. And violence is the most expensive form of dispute resolution. So if you take away that obscene profit motive, people aren't going to use violence. I mean, you know, even the liquor distributors and everything they're only making a few percent. Uh, so it's not worth it for them to go and. And go shoot up their mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. business and 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 uh, subject themselves to some type of jail term or, or anything over it. Uh, it would make no sense, and so that's why they don't do it. Let's approach this the prohibition itself. Where does this come from? Um, federally, did this start federally? Um, and trickle down to states and communities, or how did this how did this all start? Well, I I, I tell you a good a good way to look at the drug war. Uh, first of all, is just look up the Wikipedia version of the Opium Wars, and the Opium Wars were you know the uh, seventeen and eighteen hundreds. That was uh, when the British. Uh, and the East India Trading Company, you know, that was like a, a quasi-government, one of the first corporations mm-hmm. uh, that was given a charter to deal drugs. So Britain had this great uh, 
colony in India with a bunch of slaves, and they produced a lot of opium. Uh, the British uh, liked to buy Chinese goods. Chinese only would take silver in payment, and the British were running out of silver. So they decided, hey, let's sell the Chinese a bunch of opium. Opium was, was they were trying to make it illegal in, in, in the provinces in China. And so what did the East India Company and Britain do? They lobbied the Chinese governors to keep it illegal, but allow them to import the opium and sell it in China. So so that was the deal was keep it illegal but let us sell it. And if you that's the same pattern that has continued um in that in the one of the first banks was HSBC Hong Kong uh, Shanghai Banking Corporation uh that that you know that's how they started off uh you know was was funding the all the financial transactions for the opium wars. That's one of the largest banks in the world. They just got fined a couple billion dollars uh, for what were they doing? The exact same thing just about two years ago. It was one of the largest fines ever enforced. Of course, it was only about two days' worth of profits for them. And the Department of Justice kept most of their findings secret. Why? Because they, and this is their own words, is that, if they released it, it would destabilize the entire banking industry. <laughs> so we have that that part of it. So you see they keep it illegal, but then the, that way they can kind of control it and work it back and forth and then also use it to de- destabilize other governments kind of at will. And we did the same thing in Laos uh, in the 1970s. That was the most heavily bombed place on earth and we were you know uh fighting a war uh you know in the vietnam era at the same time uh it was one of the largest opium producers in the world and somehow that was getting back out to us you know through air america and other nefarious uh ways and then we did the same thing down in south america in the in the in the 1970s and the 1980s with cocaine um and you know, good old Colonel Oliver North, uh, selling selling uh, tow missiles to Iran, uh, and and then uh, taking and then selling. What were they? Yeah, they're taking selling guns to Iran, and then also they're using taking cocaine as payment from the Contras. Uh, and selling them guns, and then they would take the cocaine, fly it into the United States, and then and then direct it into the black communities to destabilize them, uh, which was you know part of Nixon's plan of you know let's let's run the drugs into the into the minority communities, uh, and that way we can go and arrest them and bust them bust them up because they're you know a bunch of civil rights agitators. Oh yeah, and the anti-war hippies, uh, you know we'll we'll run a bunch of uh, LSD uh, into their camps and then turn around and arrest them for that. Uh, so it's a whole they're working both sides of the of it as just a really nefarious control and destabilization programs. Uh, it's st- yeah, it started off Harrison Narcotics Act, like 1914. That was just a ban, uh, opium and federal, you know, federal ban of opium, mainly for the Philippines. Uh, and we see what the Philippines is doing now, drug war wise, um, where they have just, you know, these, uh, 
police running around doing execution squads. Uh, hopefully we don't get to that here in America. Uh, yeah. So it was, you know, used as a, as a band, but it's always been targeted toward minorities, the opium for the, you know, for the Chinese trying to enslave, uh, you know, white women and take people's jobs. Uh, you know, the marijuana for the Mexicans and the cocaine craze Negroes, uh, yeah, the it, it, reefer madness. Yeah. The whole, yeah. The whole yeah. reefer madness. Mm. Uh, you look at, uh, uh, Billie Holiday, you know, and she was the, uh, this, you know, the black singer in the, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the 1920s, you know, when it probably one of the most popular, uh, singers, you know, at, at her time. And she had a heroin problem and, uh, good old Harry Anslinger, the, the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, uh, you know, specifically targeted her, uh, she was the one that sang the song Strange Fruit, which was about, you know, lynchings, uh, you know, in the South at the time. So obviously, you know, she was politically active and that was unpopular. So they used her, you know, her uh, her drug issues against her uh, to destroy to destroy her. Mm. And that's what they've done. And so we we do that today. And that's what I did as a cop. I knew that history. I knew that that drug enforcement had been used to target uh, specific communities. But then I went out there, I was like, oh, that's that's not us anymore. You know, that was the old days. I would never do anything like that. But we turned right around and did the exact same thing. I'm telling you, people don't understand this. Uh, if if you take any community, and, 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 and some people don't understand, why does the black community have so much crime? Why, do, why don't they just pull themselves up from their own bootstraps? Well, let me tell you. You take any community and you fence them in economically or however. You fence them in where, they're not, where they can't really readily flee. And then you, you enforce laws and you patrol them like we have. For, and you do that for generations. You criminalize people. Uh, remember blacks? Blacks and whites use drugs at, at very similar rates. Actually, black females use it at a lower rate. Uh, so, But you criminalize them. And you do that for generations. And I'll show you a community that's unable to pull themselves off their bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. And that, you know, and I participated in that. And... And then, you know, we're surprised at the results that, that, that those communities are destabilized and we just spent generations destabilizing them. And you say, well, you know, we just should just get tough just one time and just kind of clear up the drugs and that'll, and that'll stop it. Well, let me tell you something. The United States has the world's largest prison population, larger than China, larger than Russia. We incarcerate about 2.2 million people. We have about 5 million people under some type of correctional control. We would have to reduce our incarceration rate by 80% just to equal the average incarceration rate in Europe. 80%. Hmm. We would would have to just let all 80% of of a prison population out just to equal what Europe currently incarcerates that's how insane uh that we 
that we have uh, been with our incarcerations. And those have, and we've been doing that again for decades. And th- that that has this just kind of self-perpetuating effect. And money, yeah, there's a whole of prison, uh, law enforcement, industrial com. I got paid to you know to go out there and do it. Uh, and it's very interesting how it's difficult for a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Mm-hmm. And. and and so that whole system feeds on itself. In a way, it doesn't care whether you're the cop or the criminal. Just as long as you're involved, uh, then then it perpetuates itself. Uh, and in some ways, and this this is why I'm I'm so hard, and why I speak out so hard, is because what police officers are doing, they're harming themselves. When you arrest someone unjustly, you're, you're enslaving them, is what you're doing. You're you're saying you you don't, you know, I control your body. I have a claim to your body over it's, you, and that's a, yeah. that's an unjust claim. The un the end of freedom. Yeah. The end of freedom. But really, the officer he is enslaving himself to an unjust system. And it's and he mentally enslaving himself, and I, and we'll we'll all be called to account at some point uh, in our life or or afterwards for for what we have what we have done. And would you rather be be known as someone who was oppressed unjustly, or would you like to be the one who was the oppressor hmm. when when your accounting comes? Mm-hmm. And so I'm really speaking out to police officers. Hey, you're harming yourself. You're gonna you're gonna suffer mentally and spiritually. Uh, what you're doing is wrong. You're and uh, you're harming others unjustly, and you're gonna end up destroying yourself spiritually. What possibly could an an officer do, though? I mean, other than quit. I mean, how do you? That's how a, that's you, a, how do you do your job? That's when, that's a that's a good question. When part of the job is to enforce laws that you you may find morally reprehensible, what 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 is a person to do in the position? Brian, have you ever harmed someone unjustly? I think um, I'd say in my um, teen years, yes, yeah. Very rarely, though, because I'm a very, I'm not a very violent mm. person. Right. But it, it has happened, and um, I've had to actually uh, meditate what, it away recently. What What should someone do if they're if they're if they're faced with um, keep your job or do something unjust? What should What should someone do? What would be the right thing for them to do? Well, the the hard thing would be the right thing to do and the yeah. hard thing would be to walk away you got to walk away you you, you, you but as, as, all as a, you're going to do is create a vacuum all, for a well, bad mother effer to come in there who couldn't get in the marines so now he gets a gun and gets to walk the streets of his own town now he's a badass yeah, you know. So maybe and you I, remove and, and a I good element. That, that's and, that's that's what the cops do. Uh, so they do a couple things. 
uh, they'll try to go into lines of work or part of policing that is more just, uh, kind of like what I did by going into the, you know, the juvenile investigations and, and kind of getting out of the drug scene. Um, they will do that. You'll hear, you know, you'll hear a lot of uh, police officers uh, kind of former officers. You ask them, well, why'd you get out? And they're like, eh, well, you know, it's not kind of what cracked up, uh, what it's all, what you think it is or that type of thing. And that is what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even they can't really articulate it because everything they did was legal and they were what they're supposed to do. So why was it wrong? I mean, that's just not in something that's taught uh, today. Uh, so it's kind of unspoken. Yeah. So what, what do you do? Well, you will come to that point where you're going to have to either keep your job or do something unjust. And what are you going to do? And, you know, the moment you, you choose unwisely again, you, you have, you have enslaved yourself. It's tough, man. You get, you know, you don't understand it and you get in there for a couple of years and, you know, you, you, you have a career path. Uh, geez, I'm, I'm in it for five years. I got a, I got a, I got a wife and kids and a couple of car payments. And then I got to turn around and say, oh yeah, you know, all this, this thing that I really thought was super awesome and I was really doing a good job. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to just kind of quit all of that for these nebulous moral purposes. Uh, uh, not not easy to do. Yeah, I don't I don't see that happening. Oh man, this is tough. This is a this is a tough one. And it uh, when I see the like I said earlier, when I see the violence uh, against people, it it just really sickens me. Yeah, and 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 when I want to say what is what it's. It's not just bad apples. Uh, you do have that. But this, these are good guys uh, that want to do what's right. And they're following policy and procedure, generally speaking. Uh, and that's where the most abuse is. In, in some ways, it's not the real egregious ones. Uh, it's just those everyday ho-hum, uh, just you know, grabbing someone for jaywalking and 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 then you end up arresting them because they resisted you or they had a bag of weed on them or something like that or some kind of outstanding warrant from some BS traffic stop five years ago because their license was suspended uh, from some other BS charge. Uh, and, and those, that's just thousands of those every day, day in and day out for decades across America. And that's that's some of the real abuse. I'm actually surprised cops don't kill more people than they do. Uh, and man, I could have killed probably six or ten people a year when I was out on patrol. And it would have been justified. Now, it would have been contentious now, but it could have been justified. So, uh, and we can kind of get into the training and how, how cops are really inculcated, indoctrinated, into into create creating uh, dangerous situations when they contact people and make contact with people how how, how the training actually creates violent encounters and how mm-hmm. officers are, are incentivized mm-hmm. uh, even unconsciously to to create conflict and to escalate uh, contact with with citizens 
and how that's how that's kind of taught and I, I call it like reverse how you reverse engineer your policies uh, to do that um, so with train how do you mean how do you mean Explain. yeah and, and this is a hard concept and it's and it's kind of difficult for 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 me to ar- articulate so uh, let me try to do my best here okay. uh, yeah so when you, you know, you go through training and you hear things like a Terry pat down, you know, or, or search, you know, you pat somebody's outer garments for weapons. Uh, you know, you go through weeks and weeks of, of this fourth amendment training and, and what you can search and what you can't search and when you can justify, stop someone, uh, and those type of things. And so it sounds like this whole list of, oh my gosh, just all this stuff, these poor rules these cops have to follow, which in a way is true. But the, see, the cops, they, you reverse engineer it. And and see, we incentivize uh, cops through uh, arrest rates. Not really any kind of absence of crime, but just, you know, did you lock up bad guys? And so what do they do? They go out there and find bad guys. And it's really kind of, unconsciously create those situations so you pull someone over um again for uh, you know not signaling long enough just because it's just some suspicion because they they are in a high crime area and so they're automatically uh suspicious of being a, a violent person because they may be involved in the drug trade so you can treat them differently so you know you can ask them order them out of the car get get somebody to come out of the car and and do things like um is you know if if they put their hands in their pocket that's suspicious you can pat them down oh furtive movements if they if they take their hands out of their pocket uh well uh you know that looks like they just concealed something uh if you if you tell someone you know but put your hands up, but don't and don't move. <laughs> it makes it yeah. impossible for them it's to just comply. like an infinity of non-compliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and if, and so and even just how you get out of your car, and you hear about these uh, uh, kind of like plain clothes squads of police officers called jump out boys, uh, they doing street level interdiction, and you get out of your car really quick and walk up to someone, uh, or and that's that's called a consensual contact. <laughs> You know, get up, run up. Hey, you, come here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know? and uh, and that and that's uh, written up as, as some type of consensual. But you got the person scared, you know. And plus, and then if they're black and they live in a community, they ha- they you know they've probably had a lot of bad experience, and so they're not real interested in cooperating with you anymore because they've right, been harassed right. more than once in their life already. Uh, and so they you you go to pat them down because because of these whatever furtive movements or whatever you make up. And then, of course, the person, he pulls his arm away because they don't like being touched. You know, people are funny that way. And, <laughs> oh, now he's resisting. Oh, he tried to elbow me. Now you take mm-hmm. him down and you yeah. arrest him, uh, you know, a la like Freddie Gray uh, or something. And then, well, if you find something on him, good. If not, well, you got the arrest charge. Or even then, you can just, you can still, you know, just let him go. But, uh, you know, you've, you've, you've sent the message. Right. Right. I know. Like just even just driving down the interstate here, even in the 
west side of Cleveland, the suburbs, the whiter suburbs. So when I drive down the interstate, anytime I see a car pulled over, if it's just a little beat up, maybe it's missing a taillight, it's got a wonky wheel or something, you'll always see a cop's butt sticking out of one of the doors and a black man with his hands on the trunk or handcuffed. They're always searching the vehicle. <laughs> always. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. always a black dude. I mean, yep. it's uh, the numbers are uh, well, way, way out of proportion. Right. And and because that in that per, that just perpetuates. So if you ask cops, I, if you ask cops today, I want you to go out and harass black people. You know, they're going to go. No way. That's racist. I would never do anything like that. If you tell cops, I want you to go out and force drug laws and start in these particular communities <laughs> and give us a call when you get done. <laughs> you know, that's and their cops are like, yeah, cool, we'll go do that. And, and it they just nev- goes on they, forever. And they there's nev- no, they there's never, no end. They never leave because because that that prohibition enforcement is actually overall is counterproductive and destabilizing. So, of course, the, the communities are destabilized. Which was you, the which was the intention? Yeah. Of, we and see we know that from history. That was the intention of the laws back in the 1930s and I mean, the 40s and 50s, the D- Jim Crow era. Uh, that was just a continuation by other means. I I know conservative whites that say the only reason prohibition didn't work was that they stopped enforcing it, or it's st- it, it, they, you know they they abandoned the law. I mean, alcohol prohibition. I know conservative people who believe that that it only failed because they stopped. So there's still that mentality, let alone trying to move on to how do we remove the prohibition of drugs? Yeah, well, you know, in a way, as a cop, that's how you feel because you you, you see what, what you're doing is not working. So you take it as a, as a personal insult or a personal failing. You're like, geez, I just wasn't dedicated enough. Yeah. I you got to do it harder. I, I wasn't yeah. tough enough. I didn't push those boundaries enough. I need to, you know, to put myself at risk. Uh, and, and, uh, that way we can make a difference. And so you go out there and you just sacrifice your, yourself, your integrity, uh, and, and physically, you do. You put yourself at, at great risk uh, unnecessarily. Uh, and, you know, you're destroying liberty at all times. And, and people say, well, crackheads, they're, you know, they, they steal a bunch of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. some, mm-hmm. some do. Yeah. But the United States, the federal government, seizes more money in unconstitutional civil asset forfeiture. They seize more money in a year than is reported stolen in all burglaries combined. So the federal government seizes more money unconstitutionally through civil asset forfeiture than all money taken in reported burglaries uh, by the FBI crime stats themselves Mm -hmm. alone. So yeah, this is just straight up the government steals more money than than burglars. Ugh. uh, So let's talk about LEAP. Um, This is the uh, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Are you honestly proposing to remove all 
prohibition of drugs? Uh, is so, that is that the thing, or are we talking about weed, or is there a hierarchy of drugs? Leap advocates for the legalization and regulation of all drugs. Why? Because prohibition does not work. It's prohibition that causes so much of the social harms uh, and that we see today that's, that's associated with falsely attributed to drug use. So even the more what you would consider dangerous drugs, it's actually more important to legalize them. And you're going, that's, you know, you're just screaming, what? That's crazy. Yeah, what about the children? Uh, what about the children? Right. Think think of it this way. Prohibition is you would people visualize that as some ultimate level of regulation. When actually the opposite of the case. Prohibition is the abdication of all regulation. Is you are prevented from doing any regulation whatsoever. That's why there's the chaos with the drugs. So you have to legalize it in order to regulate it. Drugs are being sold at every street corner, uh, you know, in every store now. And we can look at other countries. Portugal, uh, in one instance, 16 years ago, decriminalized all drugs. So... Uh, for possession amounts, you're not going to get arrested for it. And what happened? Their drug use and abuse rates went down. 16 years. Hmm. You know, it's gone down. Youth rates, gone down. Uh, HIV rates, gone down. Overdose death rates. The overdose, overdose death rate uh, per 100,000 people in Portugal is about a three. Uh, in I was just looking up uh, the state of Florida, and their overdose death rate uh, is twelve per one hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So about four times more. Yeah, yeah. So you know we're we're not saving lives, and there's other countries uh, in Europe that have you know uh, kind of safe injection centers or, or even like heroin assisted treatment, so people that are addicted to heroin can use it, uh, and that way they don't die. Uh, which is which is a good thing. That's better than you know. Okay, they're using heroin. Well, you know they're alive. Um, it's interesting. Fentanyl. You hear we're, we're all oh this dangerous fentanyl is is coming in here and it's killing everybody. And if fentanyl is more concentrated, that is true. Fentanyl is a Schedule Two drug. It's actually scheduled less than heroin. <laughs> so. You know, that's just kind of the absurdity of our loss. Yeah, but that's yeah. but that's the all of this drugs become more potent. Uh, it's called the iron law of prohibition. Same thing with alcohol prohibition. Beer production just totally went away because it's just much liquor was much more valuable. So you see, yeah, if same. you're gonna if you're gonna take the risk, you might you as see, well get the you biggest this, bang for your buck. You right? see, you the bang for your buck, right? And um, and marijuana. So Colorado and Washington State have done some uh, pretty, uh, you know, advanced uh, legalization. And the youth rates, the youth use rates have not gone up in those in those states. Have not gone up. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, when you legalize a drug, it actually makes it more difficult for kids to obtain. And that was my experience as a police officer on the street. Uh, that kids, it was actually uh, easier for them to get illegal drugs in some ways than alcohol and cigarettes. Yeah. Because I, drug, dealers, <laughs> drug dealers don't ID. I remember being a teenager and yeah, we'd be sitting in the car and be like, I want to get, I want some beer. You know, you're 16, 17. It's like, man, that's fucking hard to get. You've got an older <laughs> brother, you know, you know somebody. No, we could get high. You know, someone's got weed or we could get more weed. That's easy. You know, seven houses we could go to, right? <laughs> yes. And but then we would end up parking in like a, you know, the local dairy mart or whatever and just waiting for someone who looked kind of like a guy who didn't give a shit. <laughs> and we would just be like, hey, dude, get us some beer. You know, you'd have to, you're really putting yourself out there <laughs> just to get some alcohol. You know, the core of this is really, you know, we, we do have a, a people problem. Um, people are really struggling. They didn't ask to be born. They're just here, right? And people are suffering. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm pursuing ways in my mind, doing this thought experiment of how to lower the suffering for people. Um well, and that's and, you know, I, and that's I don't, the goal. That's uh, yeah, the goal I, with with leap is you know harm harm reduction, and that should be the goal for there you go for okay. anyone that is a public servant, you know, or, or a police officer. The goal in your community is less harm, and so we use the drug laws as some kind of perverse minority report. Well, we got to stop the drugs because the drugs cause other crime. Uh, and so that's the logic. And guess what? It doesn't work. It actually I mean, makes it, things it, it makes things worse. It's so, so dystopian. I mean, it is such a wreck, and it is so foul that it's it's almost impossible to have a conversation about. I mean, seriously, that it is. It it breaks my mind. I I don't know how to make it vanish, <laughs> and so I have to deal with the fact that uh, drugs are illegal, which creates all the mayhem. Um, it, it does. Man. And, um, uh, you, you want, you know, in a couple of ways, I hate that I'm advocating for drug use. I, I, I would avoid using drugs. I think as far as, you know, a healthy person and, uh, I would avoid them. Now, do we, do we need drugs? Yeah, sure. I've taken, uh, Oxycontin and morphine and that's just as dangerous as heroin, isn't it? Am I some evil drug crazed zombie now? No, it actually helped me, and I'm glad I took it. Uh, but I don't use it now, and I'm I have I do have pain today uh, that I probably would have less of it if I took uh, other drugs. But I stay away from because I, I worry about the you know the long term effects. But see, I sure. make those yeah. own decisions for my own because I'm like this, you know, free. A conscious adult and I can make those decisions I don't need uh, you know a cop doing that for me that's that's ridiculous and so I as and so how can a police officer how could I as a person think I could make those decisions for a total stranger uh, on the other side of town but I could put a uniform and a badge on and go do it 
and then shoot them if they resist my my urging? Yes. Oh, you yeah. you need to use these drugs, not these other ones, unapproved ones, or we'll have to come in and take your stuff and shoot you if you resist. Uh, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, and and just under people got to understand at the same time the government is pushing those drugs the other way and so you have intelligence agencies and uh, the banking industry and all letting it flow and targeting specific communities you see uh, Chapo Guzman down in Mexico uh, you know he was public enemy number one in Chicago all his seems like all his drugs was going to Chicago uh, his number three guy was was arrested a few years ago uh, right after meeting with Justice Department officials, he got arrested. And part of his defense was, I had an agreement with you guys <laughs> for years to, you know, convey information about competitors and you would allow me to deal my dope. And it's 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 the basis of like, right. every cop episode of every show. <laughs> right. And so they yeah. did that for years. Now, right. what did the government say? They said, ah, uh, you're full of it, but the documents that you're asking for, uh, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna let you have those in court due to national security issues. So, <laughs> so this whole this whole back and forth opium war continues continues today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't I don't support or condone or advocate for drug use or abuse. Of course, I also, right. I also yeah. do not advocate for caging and killing people. Uh, for for their choices caging a human for an addiction is a strange thing to do right would a, you imagine a doctor a physician uh, prescri- prescribing that type of treatment yeah we're gonna we're gonna take take your money make you lose your job uh, pull you away from your family and put you in a jail cell and that's how we're gonna treat you Mm-hmm. So you would they wouldn't that's an, would be unconscionable as a medical professional to advocate for that type of treatment. Yet that's what we do, and and well, then people that are recreational yeah. and and addiction is a small percentage of people that use drugs. Yes, even methamphetamine and heroin. It's, it's just you know those percentages of people that do have addictions and they're real and they're real problems. Just like alcohol has their percentage of people that have real problems. Uh, most people are not addicted. And so why are you going to even arrest them? And, and even if they are, they're not out harming anyone. <laughs> you know? Very Right. Very few. There's no, they're not using any violence or force against any other people. No. So let, you know, uh, let them ha- have their cho- have their choices. I would now, advocate do, for people yeah. not to do that. But of, again, of I'm not going to shoot like, them, and I'm not going to, and especially give the government that power. Right, it's ridiculous. Right. Uh, did you recently do some testifying or something? What, what were you? I I did. I'm um, so the state of South Carolina is. They have a medical marijuana bill to where they can legalize uh, marijuana for medical purposes. You know, it's a really strict bill. Um, and so I went to this, the state house in, uh, in front of the, you know, medical committee uh, to testify uh, in support of, of the law. 
and I was the only uh, police officer there to advocate for it. There's about 40 other cops in there from around the state, uh, you know, sheriffs and the and the head of the SLED, which is the state law enforcement division. Uh, you know, they're all they're all there making sure they're there. It's their opposition of it. And, you know, and I was the only one there to, in, in support of it. Um, there's families and uh, children that have these, you know, daily seizures and serious medical issues that that uh, medical marijuana helps them. And I'm sitting there, before, you know, before the testimony begins, and there's this kid about 12 years old, and he has the most horrible seizure. And this is a daily occurrence for him. Cannabis helps him. Mm-hmm. And then here's all these cops that are supposed to be helping the community and whatever. And they sit there and testify in opposition to this. So what they're saying is, yes, I want to reserve the right to arrest a parent and put them in jail for helping their child. And I can't think of anything more detestable uh, and un-American and antithetical to any oath or duty to serve and protect the, the, the most vulnerable members of your community. seems to me that uh, in, in a most, lot of government activity <laughs> is the most un-American activity. <laughs> it's, uh, wow, that's just horrific that uh, this, of all drugs, the marijuana issue is just such a farce. Um, it, that, it is. I think it's a real, uh, it's a real gateway, uh, not to addiction but it's a gateway to, to legalization. And, and what do I see with the, with the whole, uh, kind of politics of the legalization effort and everything? Um, you know, they've been trying to keep it illegal for a very long time and and it's, they've always known it's had medical benefits from the very beginning in the 1930s. Uh, and again, in the 1970s when they made it schedule one, uh, they've they've known that it has medical benefits. Um, why I think they keep marijuana illegal? One, I think it probably is a much more beneficial uh, drug than a lot of big uh, pharmaceutical medications, uh, and and I think that and we're starting to see some studies now in Colorado where marijuana use goes up and prescription drug use goes down. Now, is, is that correlation mean causation? I don't know. But uh, the fact that the pharmaceutical industry is fighting this very hard uh, m- makes me believe that it would be bad for their business. And, they, and see, they can't, um, they can't really patent these substances. They're trying. They, they, t- they take, you know, tease out these one little uh, elements. One cannabinoid. Or con- one of, cannabinoid. Yeah, of and, hundreds or thousands or whatever, right? Yeah, right. And, yeah. and, then, uh, and then synthesize it and try to, and then, you know, rebrand it. That's like Marinol is synthetic THC mixed with sesame oil and put in a capsule. And that's legal and has medical benefit. I mean, the, the, the mental gymnastics are, 
are just absolutely amazing. Uh, but I think that's a I think that's a big deal. What I'm what I'm seeing now is I think is a delaying action, and so they're slowly just trying to delay uh, legalization, and they're trying to uh, just put massive amounts of onerous regulations in kind of like uh, you know a regulatory reverse regulatory capture uh, mm-hmm. uh, thing where they put the regulations in and. Uh, to the point where only large corporations with lots of money and the ability to, uh, you know, to make that compliance costs uh, effective based on their size to get them in position. And so that, I think that's kind of what you're seeing now. What a crazy topic. I mean, I have never really talked about this before, so it's, my head's just spinning and <laughs> uh you know uh man i i swear i love the country i live in and yet at times i grit my teeth like i, I like currently i feel there's going to be some increased pressure at the federal level and things are going to get worse with someone like sessions in power it doesn't seem like he's going to be a big help. <laughs> well, you, uh, and we've we've seen that in history. They they go back and forth. It's kind of like the Hegelian dialectic, uh, and you know they kind of work. You know the the liberals and the conservatives uh, up against each other, uh, and inter seesaw back and forth, eroding our rights. Uh, we get the liberals in power, and they put in this. You know this horrible, uh, totally socialized healthcare system, and then they put the conservatives in power, and they put in this onerous, uh, increased uh, criminal justice system. And so they, it just kind of goes back and forth, yeah, yeah, and, and teeter totter our way uh, into an absolute tyrannical um, leviathan police state. Yeah, fortunately for this episode, even though we're like an hour and 20 minutes in, we did manage to avoid all those horror stories. I didn't think there was a need to traumatize anyone with those, the the horror stories of the violence against people. There are insanely well-documented. I am going to include them in the show notes, though. You've actually written about some very specific cases you tweet about ongoing cases constantly. If you want to get your nerves on edge, <laughs> uh, follow Rayford on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I, I, there's something to this. If it pings something in your mind, if it, if it irritates you, that's, that's a signal. You know, that's a signal. To, it's a calling to people that we need to do something. I don't yet know what to do at all um but i know it bothers me so um i'm definitely going to link to um many things and maybe in the introduction i'll mention some names some things you've written uh, about individual cases to show the real horrors of of what this what the police state the war on drugs can really do to an individual
it's very scary. You know, it is. And so, you know, people can follow me, uh, Rayford D on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, I've written run article that, that kind of a, people can see where I'm coming from. It's called murder in the service of the drug war. And it's the passion of Livonia Riggins. Yes, and an that's excellent a, that's, article. Yes. And this, mm-hmm. uh, posted at uh, libertarian Institute and, um, Livonia, uh, young man, uh, Murdered in a in a in a SWAT raid over marijuana, totally unarmed, asleep in his bed in his room, and they shot him and killed him, and ruled justified. Uh, and that's just no. Yeah, and the check. thing is, if if that doesn't bother you, if yeah. that doesn't ping your moral code, if that doesn't alarm you, then we have a a bigger problem than. Uh, than I'm even imagining. I don't know how many people this will upset. They're like, oh, that's someone else's problem. That's some other community. That's not my problem. I don't have a drug problem. I don't have cops kicking my door in. Well, uh, Brian, let me... You, but just you imagine, asked, what, just what? imagine, just imagine if something got screwed up and someone thought I was the guy with the pot and I'm laying in my bed and my door gets kicked in at three o'clock in the morning you know i try to put myself in this position and i'm like what would i do i would react insanely and violently i would (laughs) right i have three children i've got a wife in there i would go berserk i would be dead for what in a cop the murderer the the mental exercises make me crazy. I, I I swear I have to not think about this all the time. Uh, well, let me let me help, help people uh, with you. You ask, what do you do in response to this? Once you become aware aware of what's going on, and uh, I, I like to to quote uh, Botier from the 16th century: "Resolve to serve no more, and you are at once freed." I do not ask that you place your hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer, and then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been lift has been pulled away, fall of his own weight, and break into pieces. You can't change the system. You can withdraw your own support and your own consent and your and your own participation in the system, and you can save yourself. You can do that, and then you can speak out and help others and guide them. And that's all we can hope for in this lifetime. If the system falls away, that would be wonderful as well. But you you're not going to jump in there and take the reins and grab the ring of motor, <laughs> grab the ring and and wield it. Um, to destroy itself that's not going to happen just just withdraw your own support and consent and speak out